So, hello and welcome back to the PSC in Conversation. Now, the PSC is a specialist consultancy dedicated to making public services brilliant. I'm Antonio and I'll be your host for this podcast. We're delighted that you can join us. Um, So, I've got a super exciting guest for our first podcast of the new year. Uh, Our guest was Permanent Secretary of the Department for Education for four years from 2016 and steered the department through enormous changes, uh, both before and indeed during the early phases of of COVID-19. That meant overseeing closing schools to all but the most vulnerable pupils with just a a tiny amount of notice, to providing laptops and online materials to support remote learning from scratch, uh, and and so much more. And of course, before that, um, this this person was head of the uh, was at the same time head of the civil services policy profession uh, at a local authority, deputy chief executive, and director of education. And we are delighted, therefore. But of course, it's Jonathan Slater. And Jonathan's joined us uh, at the PSE of one of our, our new expert senior advisors to help us uh, grow our support for our education clients. Uh, Jonathan, it's a, it's a real pleasure to have you join us at the PSE and to join us with this podcast. I'm absolutely delighted uh, both to have had the opportunity to join PSC and uh, to be talking to you today. Thank you. We start a little bit about you. You've had a, a stunning career in public services, much yet yet to come, I know. But I, I, lots of people listening to this podcast, I think, are either either clients of ours, but also people interested in, in, in working in, in public services. So what, what motivated you to go into this line of, uh, of work? Sure. Well, um, my father was a teacher uh, before he then became a sort of lecturer at first of all, first of all at FE and then universities, and my mother was a children's social worker. Uh, and I don't think it can be a coincidence uh, that when I became a permanent secretary many years later, I was the head of a department responsible for regulating teaching and children's social work. Um, to explore that a bit further... Uh, I guess I was a kid who didn't rebel, uh, and I, you know, enjoyed um, being uh, uh, brought up by my parents and admired and respected them. Uh, And so I think it's really for that reason that I found myself uh, inevitably moving into the public sector. I guess if they worked in banks uh, or supermarkets, I might have chosen a different career path, but because I was very proud of them, uh, I thought, well, you know, there must be some version of that that I can do myself. Oh, you, you make me feel terrible, Jonathan, because both my parents were economists and wanted me to do economics and, and become an economist. And I uh, didn't do that, uh, but I'm very proud of them as well. I, okay, can I, did, you, did you have the opportunity as, as permanent secretary, for, you, know, with, 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 you know, were they around to share thoughts or commentary on, on how you were doing or how they would do things differently? Uh, yes, uh, yes, absolutely. Unfortunately, my father died um, just before uh, COVID started. Uh, but they were both um, around when I started in my role. And, I mean, they were very important to me all the way through my career, actually. Um, And certainly when I became the head of the department, I I think it was very good for me. Uh, uh, It reminded me that, you know, the DfE is not an end in itself, Um, that if you abolish the Department for Education today teaching and social work would still go on, wouldn't they? Half a billion pounds of taxpayers' money would be saved. That's the administrative cost of the DfE. Um, And you could employ a lot of teachers and social workers with that money, couldn't you? Um, In fact, I used to go along to every single induction meeting of all new starters in the Department of Education, and I would remind them of that. 
and I would ask them to carry out a bit of a thought experiment. Let's say that happened, the department was abolished, what would teachers and social workers do the next day? You would hope that they would decide that it's really important to have a national institution that shares best practice, that allocates funding, that organises teacher training and social work training. But they might, they might just celebrate uh, and employ some more teachers and social workers. You know, it, it, and I think that the reason that was my mindset was because of where I was from, and it helped me stay focused on what the task was, which is, in the end, to help teachers and social workers uh, support children, and indeed adults, um, uh, better uh, than without our work. Ah, that's, a, that's a brilliant point, and I can imagine a few... Uh... Uh, thoughtful faces uh, when you will have challenged your, your, uh, your colleagues on their first day <laughs> to, to consider that and maybe something we'll, we'll, we'll love to pick up a little later in the conversation um, but staying on your on your career and experiences what you know what what, what do you feel have been the main lessons that you've learned so far in uh, as many decades as a as a as a public servant I can answer that question both by reference to what I've learned about myself, you know, what uh, I'm good at and what I'm not good at and what it makes sense for me to do and what it makes sense not for me not to do and the extent to which that changed over time. Or uh, I could answer that in respect of, you know, what I've learned about um, what makes public services good or bad. I'm very happy to uh, explore either of those angles. Where, where would you like me to start, Antonio? Oh, can we start with the, with the Jonathan angle, please? <laughs> so... Um, uh, well, yeah, so while I was busy admiring my parents, what I was good at at school was maths. And so the, um, it, you know, the, the obvious thing for me to carry on studying after school was maths, and so I did. And in fact, my, the first job I did after university was in maths. I can picture myself in the careers library at the university looking at what jobs mathematicians do. You could be an actuary, you could be an accountant, you could be a teacher. Um, I didn't really feel that any of those were for me. I mean, I would have liked to be a teacher, but I just didn't think I got the skill. And I was definitely right about that, as I found subsequently becoming a parent. It's hard enough, you know, with one child, two, three, 30 in a class. Goodness me. I mean, the jobs they do are amazing. They really are. Anyway, um, operational research was something I'd never heard of that turned out to be sort of mathematical modelling, using maths to help solve complex policy problems. I thought, well, that sounds interesting. And so I did that because that seemed the natural thing for me to do. And I found myself working for British Rail for a couple of years using, you know, mathematical models in the ways you might imagine, you know, what's the right number of spare parts to have accessible, um, what's the right way to organise a timetable, would it be worth investing in train protection systems to reduce casualties in accidents, those sorts of questions, you know, for which maths is applied. But what I learned was, for me, I just wasn't interested enough in the subject. I mean, obviously trains are a good thing, uh, an extremely good thing, but I just wasn't that interested. Uh, and, and the fact that I was good at maths wasn't a sufficient compensation for me, you know, uh, from a sort of career reward point of view. And actually, although I was good at maths, you know, the other people in the team were a bit, a bit better, um, to, be, to be frank. And so I thought, no, this isn't for me. And I wanted something that I just felt more inspired by. And so it turned out that for me, you know, it was the subject matter, you know, what I was working on was more important than the application of my particular skill set. You know, that, that's not, gen, not generalisable. You know, some people, I don't know, they're computer programmers, it sort of doesn't really matter where they are. But for me, it was uh, the, the, the purpose that turned out to be the most important thing, which I guess is another reason why I ended up in public services. Ah, fascinating. And, and I think that's... Uh, uh... Probably certainly something I can relate to. I think many colleagues of the PSC certainly have a similar focus that it's the it's the domain of public service and the purpose of, of trying to make things better for citizens that uh, that motivates. 
over and above a specific. And once, of course, well, so, so once I decided, you know, it, it was definitely going to be a, a, a public service and a, a, um, local government seemed just essentially more interesting than trains. Uh, you know, local government gives you so many things. It gives you education, gives you social care, gives you housing, gives you planning. You know, gives you how do you try and optimise on behalf of local people. Um, you know, that is a really hard... How do you make sure that you stay connected to them? What could be more interesting than that? And so, you know, I was going to be happy there, and I was, but there's still the question arises, what are you going to do then? What is your contribution going to be in that space? And at first I thought it would be my sort of analytical brain, um, but, you know, because that's what I was good at. But as I left British Rail and explained that I was leaving uh, for local government, I, you know, obviously I wasn't rude. I didn't say these trains are a bit boring. I said, I'm not quite as good at maths as my colleagues. And they said, we know, which I thought was a bit rude. But they went on to say, it doesn't matter, right? Because what you've got that they've not got is the ability to communicate what you have found. You know, mathematicians, apologies to my colleagues on the call, are not always the best at communicating and you've got it Jonathan and that is a skill we need in our team of course it was too late by then I'd already you know decided to leave but what I learned about myself was that actually there there were there were contributions I could make that I hadn't really thought of uh, that that were more important than the thing that I had thought at school that I was best at Uh, and the ability to engage and inspire and communicate and learn and you know just talk and develop you know, that was actually uh, the contribution I could most usefully make. And so it, I guess that's why, you know, by accident, I, I, having learned that lesson, I found myself getting involved essentially in management and leadership. You know, h- how to explain to, to new starters, as I said earlier, what this is about, how to encourage them, inspire them. You know, it was, it was about, you know, communications essentially more than anything else. And, and just as a, as a maybe you've you've covered it there, but you know, is there anything that you wish before you'd made that leap from from British Rail that you thought oh, I wish somebody had told me that about what well, you know what I was going into, be it in local government or in a uh, at a, a central government level, you know, that somebody just said, oh, Jonathan, you need to watch out for X. Well, um, so that it, it, the, the, the example I've given you is quite is quite a good one, and it is. Um, you know, it's, it's, it, it was instructive for me subsequently in my career, you know, giving people feedback about what they do well as well as what they need to improve on, you know, it's just really important. Um, and certainly in the public sector that I've worked in, you know, the favourite meeting of most people's month is not their monthly appraisal meeting. Um from the manager's point of view, you know, giving constructive feedback about what you're good at and what you're not good at, you know, is hard. Of course, it's not that easy in your home life, is it? You know, do I want my wife to tell me what I've done wrong, you know? Um, and <coughs> the, 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 but, but the ability of managers to have a straightforward conversation with their people to help them to learn what they're good at, what their contribution is, uh, and how to grow that, you know, is really, really important. Um, so... Uh, yeah, so so you know, so that's something I've tried to um, keep on in that you know, as 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 a manager. I remember working subsequently for the Permanent Secretary Minister of Justice, Suma Chakrabarti, and I would go into my meetings with him uh, at first, ready to account for what I had done in the previous month. And there's a little bit of that, 
But essentially, Suma had appointed me because he knew that I was good at my job. And it was my job, but it wasn't his job. So why would he spend a lot of time, you know, with me telling him what I was doing? Uh, rather, let's have a conversation about what I'm learning from that, how I'm developing, um, how I'm making sure that I'm making the use of my skills, how I'm making sure that I'm thinking about what I'm going to do next after this role and using this opportunity to develop what is missing in my current portfolio. And I tell you, that is a much more enjoyable conversation actually to have. I mean, it does need to be combined with, you know, just let's just make sure you've done the thing you're supposed to do. But let's balance it with, a, a you know, a skills development conversation, which um, in the civil services, you know, all too often, you know, an annual conversation at the end of the year deciding how much bonus you're going to get, not a rich conversation about, you know, how to make sure you play to your strengths. That's a brilliant point. Thank you for sharing that. And if, if we could move on to the... Uh, the, the big topic of, of education, uh, which has obviously played a, a huge role in your in your career. I mean, if we start with a, you know, a top level question, what, what what in your view is a good education? Um, well, you know, if you were to read sort of any uh, um, vision statement, probably from any government in the UK over the last generation, you know, whatever the political party, you'd find pretty much the same words often in the same order, um, to do with uh, enabling every child to uh, reach more of their potential, you know, that sort of agenda, to give people the best possible start in life uh, and to help them to continue to grow and develop through life, uh, lifelong learning, both for the benefit of the economy as a whole uh, and for the benefit of society. Um, you know, so... so there's nothing controversial about that, and well, it's a, it's a very high ambition. Um, you know, different politicians I've worked for have uh, prioritised different elements of that. Of course, um, some prioritise the sort of economic benefit of education um, overall, um, and you know, if if, if kids um, leaving education, you know, are not able to secure. Um, uh, a decent job that meets their needs and those of the economy, then education, you know, won't won't really have done what it should do. But I'm just as interested um, in the you know social contribution. It is quite striking that you know people who've gone to university are more likely to vote, for example. That's a you know a social benefit. Um, uh, you know, well-being is, is of course a you know high-profile issue at the moment. Typically, the English education system scores well in tests across the OECD on academic subjects and badly on young people's well-being. And that would have only got worse, of course, during coronavirus. So, you know, uh, um, the, the, you know it's it, the work that teachers and their colleagues in schools do to help young people prepare for adult life in the round is, is vital. Um, uh, you know, it can't all be laid on the, at the door of teachers, of course. Um, many others have got an important contribution, and not least... Uh, uh, parents uh, and the wider community, but you know, at the heart of it, that's what education up to the age of eighteen is for. Uh, you know, a very striking thing about the English education system is how in uh, um, how lacking in equality it is. Um, how uh, you know, um, largely through an accident of birth and or an accident of geography. You know, some kids do unbelievably well, and it's sort of obvious from right from the beginning how well they're going to do. And uh, but there is a very long tail in England, much more so than in most developed countries, of uh, 
of poor educational performance, of an education system which essentially is not meeting the needs of very large numbers of children. Of course, the ones who actually need it the most. Um, so, you know, that would be a sort of top priority for me. And a, a different angle on this, but equally challenging and important, is that lots of young people, uh, and indeed adults too, have um, all sorts of additional educational needs. And it, there have been you know, many efforts over the decades to address special educational needs, uh, not, which again is not just a task for education, but also for the health service and for local government. But really, you know, that system is not working at all well. It really isn't. So I, I would, you know, if, if, if I were in charge, I would um, be putting more focus on disadvantage and on uh, additional needs and how we can bring people, you know, how, how we can better support those who need us the most. And, and there's a, a, I mean, very important point there. And do you have reflections on why that long tail of, of poor performance and the the lack of focus or, or more focus that could be placed on special educational needs? How how's that as a as a society been allowed to happen? In so far, you know, in, whereas in other countries is less marked. Is it? Awareness is it political priorities? Is it you know a mix or something else? Well, this is the downside of being a mathematician uh, rather than historian. Uh, I'm better at analysing the world as it is uh, than explaining why it has come to be as it is. Obviously, though, I have been interested in that question, um, uh, but there are others you know better placed to answer it than me. I, uh, you know, I, I would point to a few obvious things really. Um, the if you are a politician seeking um, the, you know, the support of the public uh, for a general election, you're inevitably incentivized to focus on the sort of majority need um, uh, rather than particular minorities who might need you more, but, you know, there are fewer votes in it. And I don't mean that in a particularly cynical way. You know, that is how any of us would be, wouldn't it? If our continued employment required us to get the support of the majority of the population, you're going to go to where the majority of the population is. Um, so, um, you know, the typical experience of the average parent, uh, you know, type thing, takes you to... Um, doesn't take you right into the heart of inequality. I mean, it, 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 it addresses it, and of course it's not the governments haven't addressed uh, inequality, of course they have, but it doesn't put the needs of the most disadvantaged at the very top of the agenda, whatever the rhetoric. Um, so that's one reason. Uh, of course, though, that applies in other countries too. I mean, there is, some, there is something, this is a sort of deeper point, it goes well beyond education, about our political system, a majority a majority government, a system of proportional representation of coalitions is, um, you know, has got weaknesses as well as strengths. I'm not arguing in favour of it. But one of its strengths is that it does bring together lots of different interests and a government has to address them all in order to sustain itself. Whereas in our country, you can, you know, you can get majority control with 35% of the vote and just get on with that. So that's, so, so uh, there's that. Um, yeah, and there is something about, um, but there is something about England. Um, we talk very blithely uh, about Oxford and Cambridge being two of the very best universities in the world. 
And in a way, well, of course they are. You know, absolutely. You know, but that is not unconnected with the fact that they are two of the most selective universities in the world, right? If you choose whoever you want to go to your university, it's probably going to be pretty good. Um, and, um, you know, that, 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 that is the nature of the English education system. It's changed over the years, and comprehensive education came in. But, you know, Oxford and Cambridge are going to 800 years. Um, you know, that, 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 um, and this notion of elite institutions for the most talented people which obviously has an important place, and these universities do amazing things, don't they? But, you know, think about the, um, uh, the vaccine. Um, take an obvious example. You know, but what is right for producing the best research in the world may not be, you know, the foundation of a... Well, it's not at the foundation of an equal education system, obviously, is it? Um, and so, the, the, you know, there is something historical about this too. But now I'm getting outside my area of expertise. Oh, well, uh, if, if you could in, indulge me for a second, Jonathan, you got my brain uh, worried. So, th- just thinking about uh, tying in the, your uh, early mathematical uh, excellence, although you humbly suggest others may have been better, like how, how should a... So, um, I'm thinking about in the health and care system, or, although people focus too much on the NHS, I think there's a relatively well-defined uh, framework for thinking about outcomes. So, you know, the purpose is good quality life years lived and there's a big focus on prevention so i.e. mental health is now rightly long overdue getting a focus for the health system but one of the arguments made is because it creates lots of costs further on in the system and I think there's an argument that's sort of finally been won there is, is that same argument there and applicable in education I, 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 I don't quite get the same sense that there's an ease of quantifying what a good education system looks like and I'm wondering if maths or the mathematical mindset could provide an in for how to understand and quantify what good looks like and then how to explain why areas such as special educational needs need more um, investment and attention. Or is it just a different, you know, they're different categories of analysis and and the the match isn't helpful? It is quite striking, the difference um, that you've referred to. I mean, when I was at British Rail and I was working out whether it was um, value for money to invest in um, something which would essentially prevent trains going through red signals, even if the driver had a heart attack, which had happened, and you know people had died as a result. Um, you know you can work out quite easily the cost of the that control, and the question is, you know, what's the benefit? And the benefit is lives saved. And how do you quantify that? And as you know, there is a well-defined way of defining um, uh, of quantifying um, quality uh, life. And that's not uh, disputed. And similarly in health, you know, they're closely related. This notion of sort of quality health lives um, is not really disputed. And education is, as you say, quite different. Um, what is, uh, you know, what, what is the purpose? Um, I, I, you asked me that question and I offered some views. Um, but, you know, the reason you asked me is because there are different views. Uh, so that um, it, it is perfectly possible to quantify most outcomes once you define what they are, um, but it's the defining of what they are, which, as you rightly say, is less is is, is you know, much more open to debate in education than it is in health. It's also more complicated in education because um, largely, you know, the question of whether I am healthy 
is about is a, is a question about me as an individual. Whereas um, whether my daughter, who's 13, gets a good education is as much to do with who she's being educated alongside. Who, who's in the rest of the class? My point about Oxford and Cambridge, yeah? You, you can provide a, you know, absolutely tip-top education uh, to a highly selected group of kids, um, but for all those kids who are not getting in the door, it's not so good for them. And actually, um, uh, you know, a highly selective education system is one uh, in which those kids in it are missing out on the broader world and not understanding what's going on around them. So you've got that added complexity, which is that you can't really pin it down to the individual. It's about the collective in a way which is much less the case for health. Mm, yeah, that's, very, that's very very well put and very uh, thought-provoking. You, you mentioned there, and you mentioned it earlier, you know, an education system, and it's a... Uh, um, uh, you know, I'm str- I, I, maybe I should check on Google Trends if this is true, but I'm, com- I'm fairly confident the word system is used increasingly in the political lexicons and we talk of you know the health system pressure on the health system but also on the education system and just what does a good system look like you mentioned earlier about kind of allowing uh, i suppose others to flourish but yeah how how, we, how do you think about the education system how what's your mental model of that yes a uh, good question I, I remember when i worked in uh, the ministry of justice um casually using the phrase criminal justice system, just as I've no doubt casually used the phrase education system on this call today, and uh, a very senior judge saying to me, hang on a minute, Jonathan, no doubt he didn't use that language, much more formal, Um, it's not a system. And of course he was right. You know, whenever one looks at any um, public services and tries to draw them on a map, (laughs) you know, it's a hell of a mess, isn't it? Uh, and often the challenge is that the you know individual consumer, patient, pupil, whatever you know is left trying to navigate this unbelievably complicated thing. Uh, and similarly, you know, the frontline uh, professionals um, are doing their best for their little bit of the so-called system, uh, but you know the lack of uh, connection between the um, different parts is you know is highly problematic. Uh, if anything, the point of people like me. Uh, the managers, the leaders, is to try and create, you know, uh, something where the whole is more than the sum of the parts and synthesis. And goodness me, we find it hard, don't we? I mean, we really do. Uh, but yes, if you look at it from the point of view of a child, uh, you know, realizing more of their potential uh, when they um, uh, when they leave home, if that, you know, if that's notion, if that's that notion of of the benefit, the purpose of education, then clearly, you know, that requires all sorts of different people, doesn't it, making the contribution. There's the, you know, the maths teacher <laughs> is one of them. Uh, but um, about three uh, children in every secondary school class in the country have got a social worker, a named social worker allocated to them. Not, not because of the school, that's just, it's just that, you know, 10% of kids have got one, right? Uh, and that person is absolutely critical. And the pressures on um, uh, children's social care over the last decade, you know, have been growing and growing and growing as, you know, sort of government prioritised spending on schools uh, and not on local government. Um, and it, it often seemed to me when I would go and talk to teachers in the classroom, it, it, that, and, you know, this is what they would often say to me themselves, um, was that what they needed was not so much, you know, more resources for more maths, uh, but uh, although you know nobody's against more resources, uh, but more resources for the, the the other services that were critical to 
those kids, you know, who needed more help, um, being able to engage uh, in the maths lesson. Um, uh, uh, you know, it's important if you're learning maths uh, that in the evening you do the homework that's required of you. An environment in which you can do the homework, you know, is straightforward enough for you and for me, uh, but for lots of kids, it simply doesn't exist. Um, you know, it was heartbreaking uh, um, as permanent secretary to see all sorts of examples of children coming to school unable to concentrate because they hadn't anything to eat. Uh, you know, uh, and um, that only got worse during coronavirus. You know, I, I, I remember the conversation I was having with a, a primary school head teacher in East London, you know, who would come into work at the beginning of each day uh, with a bag full of bagels. Um, so that's what system means. System means that um, whatever the service, whether it's health, education, crime, whatever, these are complicated things where lots of different inputs are needed. And, you know, the, the, the challenge for people like me is how do you align and coordinate the efforts of all of these different people around, around the individual patient, pupil, offender? And, you know, typically we're not very good at it. You, you, you mentioned that uh, you've mentioned a number of sort of the, the, the many important institutions and organisations within that system, and often you know, when we or I've sort of worked with alongside them or for them with the, with a PSC hat on, um, there's a, there's a constant there's sometimes a question about you know well, what does the centre or you know the department want from us? What do you think? Looking at it from a slightly different side, um, I mean, what should the relationship be between the centre and those key organisations, and if you are uh, the principal or chief exec of an FE college, or you know, uh, you know, uh, VC at a university, or head uh, at a, in a school, what should you be looking from the centre for? What, what, what should you be? What should be your priorities for trying to build that relationship with the centre? Yeah, there's two dif- uh, two good questions. They're very different questions. Starting with what should the centre be? You know, the answer is very different from what the centre is. Uh, I've already referred to this in the context of, you know, my story to New Stars in the Department for Education. The centre is an overhead, right? Headquarters are overheads. The, the, you know, the, the, the value-adding activities at the front line. Most, you know, the literature shows that most headquarters, and this is in, just as true in the private sector and the public sector, most headquarters destroy more value than they add. It's expensive. Headquarters are always expensive. Not just the, 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 you know, the, the cost of the people they employ and the buildings they operate in, but the demands they place on the front line, the transactional costs of the head office, you know, when it comes to the front line reporting on their activities and you know, all that, all that accountability regime, that is expensive. It is expensive. And you've got in the, head, in the headquarters to be able to demonstrate that the benefit of that activity the benefit of that holding account exceeds the cost of it. And it is not self-evident that it does. Um, you know, in many cases, people produce reports on a regular basis of how they're doing against some KPI or other. What happens as a consequence of that report? People often ask, what? It just goes into some black hole. I simply don't know what's going on, right? So th- this is not an education-specific point or a public sector point, but it definitely applies in, in, in both and by the way, it applies um, at the centre of a local, uh, you know, a multi-academy trust. You know, it's important, isn't it, that the people who run the trust remind themselves 
you know, that they're again there to enable the teacher to teach, you know, to teach the children better. Um, so, you know, often a relationship between the centre and the front line is described as an adult-child relationship where the adult is supposedly in the centre. Um, uh, I would put it the other way around, right? Um, you know, the question for the centre to be asking itself is, every day is, how are we helping? How are we helping? Um, but that is typically not the model. Typically, in the centre of any large organisation, um, the centre is thinking, how do we exert our power, right? We're the, you know, we're the ones in control. We know what we're doing. Get, the, get them to do it. I, I'm oversimplifying, but, you know... Um, the second half of your question was, you know, if I were the principal of every college, how would I engage with the centre? Well, I wouldn't engage with it on the basis of this um, exciting new world that I'm describing, in which the centre is here to help. Uh, I would be, because um, uh, uh, we're definitely not there yet. Um, the but but just as uh, you know, I've said it's very important for the headquarters of any organisation to think about things from the perspective of the front line. The so is the case. It, 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 it's true the other way around as well, isn't it? It is very easy for the principal of FE College, if, you know, if they want, to get very frustrated by the Department of Education and, you know, in a way, fair enough. But if you're trying to influence it, it's probably a, a good idea to try and understand why uh, things might be that frustrating. Why did it operate that way? Um, and to learn and to work out what one's, you know, sphere of potential influence is. I mean, it, it, it's a, an obvious point uh, if you work inside governments that might not be obvious if you don't. Um, is the limited power of the Secretary of State for Education, or indeed the other, any other Secretary of State. In the end, you can't do anything without money. Uh, um, you can't do anything new without new money. Um, you can't even reallocate, and you can't even reallocate your budget inside a government department without the Treasurer's approval, right? So, you know, it's complicated, and understanding more about how central government works um, will make you more influential than uh, not. That's an incredibly uh, helpful point for many of many of many of our clients. Thank you. Um, if we if we think through uh, a bit more about the future now, and, and possibly helicoptering back to what's been the dominant uh, theme of the last two years, and there's a lot of talk about. Uh, well, there was, and now we're back in the midst, hopefully coming out of uh, of, of an Omicron big Omicron wave, but recovery from COVID-19 and I, I think probably for, for for British society in general but maybe uh, you, we could venture into education in particular there's a lot of talk about you know building back better either in the US or here what does better look like what does good recovery look like in, in your view from COVID-19? Well you know this is not a new point I'm going to be making but um, the huge inequalities in the English education system have obviously been hugely, um, made hugely worse by the pandemic. It's, you know, terrible uh, reality, but it's a reality nonetheless. Um, you know, everybody suffered by not going to school, but, you know, some have suffered a lot more than others. The reason I was so keen to persuade the Prime Minister to let children with special educational needs and children with a social worker carry on going to school, even during the lockdown, and, you know, to his credit, he agreed, uh, was because I knew that, you know, those are the ones who not going to school would be really damaging for them. You know, I, and although schools were open for them, 
you know, most of them, unsurprisingly, didn't go because, well, there was a pandemic. And so, you know, their parents, if they got them, were scared. Fair enough. Um, uh, about what it would mean if they went to school. And often these are the kids it's hardest to get to school anyway. Um, uh, so, you know, they have really suffered and there have been some sort of appalling stories in the press recently, of course, about what happens with vulnerable children who are just, you know, out of the eye of the state. We tried really hard uh, when I was in the department to keep eyes on all those vulnerable children who weren't at school. And, you know, we had a a really good networking arrangement going with local authorities and out to social workers and teachers who were phoning, you know, the, uh, the parents of kids with social workers and kids with um, education and healthcare plans, are you okay, all the rest of it, you know, but clearly that um, could only take you so far and, you know, lots of people wouldn't pick up the phone. And so, you know, there's a lot of damage being done to a lot of children and uh, a lot more inequality now uh, than even than there was before and it was a lot then. So... It's a sort of huge task of focusing on supporting those kids. Um, again, you know, taking back t- taking us back to where this conversation started. That's not where the you know that's not largely where the public debate is. The public debate is about the average kid, because it would be, wouldn't it? Uh, and I, now, my daughter is not the average kid. You know, she's the daughter of a of a permanent secretary. But you know, she goes to the local comprehensive school. She, you know, she's. It's going to be harder for her to do well in her GCSEs than it would have been if she hadn't spent a year out of school. But in the end, right, that is not the problem. That is not the problem. Uh, the problem is the one I've described before. And that, you know, in, in, in a world in which there was a lot of inequality before and, um, you, you know, children's social care was already struggling, goodness me, that's going to require a big effort in the next few years. Well, that's very important and, and sobering um point but but it needs to remain high on the on the political and, and social agenda um which it, it might do by the way antonio i mean uh, nadim zahawi as the new education secretary uh, cut his teeth in the department as the children's minister um and you know had ministerial responsibility for vulnerable children and it, you know it was obvious to me when i was working for him you know that he had instinctively cared he just did um and, um, you know, so I'm no doubt that he will be wrestling with these issues himself, whatever the political context uh, that I've already referred to. Good. Re- reasons for, for optimism. And, 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 well, this may not be optimistic or pessimistic, but just as a final question, thinking ahead to the future of education, um, what do you anticipate will be the next big changes over, over the decade? How, and... and so there's a lot of talk in the role that technology is and may yet change education. And, uh, you know, a few uh, clever pundits are wondering whether there'll be a TikTok of, of a university or TikTok will branch into education services. But what, what do you see as being the big changes? And, and, and is the role of technology overstated or understated in, in potentially uh, uh, affecting how education is delivered? I, I did listen to a group of um, education technology experts talking about this very issue a few months ago. Th- uh, I was struck by the fact that all, although all these four people were specialists on education technology, they all agreed that um, the essence of the relationship between you know, child and teacher, face-to-face, group of children and teacher they thought was never going to change. 
and could never be improved upon. They all saw uh, technology as a, you know, a support mechanism, a tool, of course, and they all thought, of course, quite rightly, that there was more that could be made of these tools, and, you know, coronavirus had sort of uh, had forced that subject into schools, um, you know, which was a good thing. And so no doubt there will be much more of that. Uh, and, um, you know, so it's possible uh, to imagine sort of bite-sized um, learning uh, on TikTok videos, uh, very small bite sizes, given how TikTok works. Um, but uh, uh, you know, at the heart of it, they all felt, and, you know, so do I, uh, that that relationship between adults and groups of children remains at the core albeit that clearly um, you know the tools can be used um, a lot more effectively but you know uh, I, I used to wonder if um, it was a mistake for schools to ban mobile phones from classrooms as they typically do uh, because there's this fantastically powerful um, learning implement uh, that they could have in their hand but it was quite sobering to listen to the education tech people say, hang on a minute, you know, an iPhone is the ultimate distraction device, right? And a game will always be more fun than learning. It just will. <laughs> that was their view. Uh, so, um, uh, you know, working out how the tool can support the, the, the objective of learning uh, rather than take over does seem to me the future. Fantastic. Um, Jonathan, it's been a delight speaking. Uh, can I ask, just to, to wrap up, what's, you know, what's 2022 got in store for you? What's, uh, what, what are you, uh, beyond the, the fine work we're doing together at the PSC? I thought the sort of suitable penance for um, being permanent secretary of the Department of Education, issuing guidance to nurseries, schools, colleges, universities, day after day after day, uh, would be to find myself on the receiving end of it. Uh, for a while. So now I'm on um, uh, the board of the local multi-academy trust that includes the school that my daughter goes to. I'm on the board of Morley College um, in, uh, in London. I'm on the board of Sheffield Hallam University. Um, and, you know, it's great fun and you know, rewarding to re-engage at the, uh, a bit close to the sharp end, albeit that I'm still, you know, I'm still an overhead as a governor. I'm not actually a teacher. Um, so I do that. Um, I, uh, I'm on the board of the Institute for Government, uh, which gives me a chance to, uh, you know, to stay close to some of my ex-colleagues as they grapple with the task of how to improve the, you know, the way government works. Speaking of which, um, I'm uh, also now a visiting professor at a couple of universities, one of which at King's, King's College have given me the chance to write something about... Um, uh, civil service and uh, how it could be more effective and that's going to hit the streets shortly so uh, I, um, I, I, swear, I suppose I would summarise what I'm doing in 2022 is uh, as you know, involved in all sorts of interesting discussions with all sorts of interesting people but not actually responsible for anything and I can't tell you how much fun that is after 35, 40 years of being responsible for all sorts of things and finding it very hard <laughs> Excellent. Well, it sounds like you've got a, uh, a fun year in store and, and beyond. Uh, Jonathan, th thank you so much for joining us. Um, you've been listening to the PSC in Conversation. Uh, please do uh, subscribe or review uh, this podcast wherever you may get it. And we'll be back uh, soon uh, with, our, with, our, with another episode. Thanks for listening.